Hello and welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is use every eighth episode of this podcast to talk about Smallville. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I follow a pretty simple format for this show. I get six episodes where I talk about pretty much whatever I want. A seventh episode, which is intended for me to get together with Chris Honeywell to talk about weird stuff. And then the eighth episode is all about Smallville. And then after that, I start all over again with another six episodes about anything I want, a seventh episode with Honeywell, another Smallville episode, and so it goes. Now, about a year-ish, maybe like a year and a half ago, I started talking about Smallville Phase 2. I call it that because if you were so inclined, you could view the first three seasons of Smallville as Phase 1. And Smallville Phase 2 starts with the dreaded fourth season and then goes right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. As it goes for the fifth season, though, Clark's already covered a fair amount of ground this year. He decided to give up his powers back in the episode Arrival, which is to say the fifth season premiere. Under the circumstances, his decision to forsake his powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men is completely understandable. I mean, the guy's been through a whole lot of bullshit, especially lately, and it's mostly been trouble that wouldn't have happened if not for the fact that he has powers. But what he ultimately discovers is that he needs his powers, and on top of that, you could fairly argue that the town of Smallville needs him to have his powers. Two whole episodes were spent on teaching Clark that lesson, people, so This really isn't small potatoes. In the episode Aqua, Clark began realizing that he's opposed to Lex Luthor. That's the bad news. The good news is that there are ways of confronting Lex that don't necessarily require Clark to use his abilities. And this is the first time that Clark's begun considering that the pen might be mightier than the sword. And that's an important thing for Clark Kent to understand. In the episode Thirst, well, honestly, the less said there, the better. In Exposed, Clark's major takeaway lesson is that no matter what life throws at him, they're still right and they're still wrong. If Clark was a more bitter and cynical type of person, the events of the episode Exposed, which I talked about, a couple of episodes back, the events of the episode Exposed would have destroyed him. But they didn't. Instead, Clark seized upon the victories that he was able to win during that episode. He was at least able to exonerate Jack Jennings. He arranged for Mr. Lyon's arrest by Interpol, and he solidified his relationship with Lois by saving her from being smuggled off in a human trafficking ring. Clark didn't allow himself to be overwhelmed by Jack Jennings's corruption, or by Mr. Lyon, getting away with tons of other crimes. Sometimes in life, all you can manage are the small victories. Back in season one, Clark wouldn't have been able to tolerate the events of Exposed, but what we're seeing here in the fifth season is a kind of older and kind of wiser Clark Kent scoring the victories that he can and not worrying that he can't always perfectly deliver perfect justice perfectly every single time. And 
what really counts in the end is that Clark puts a premium on friends, family, love, and loyalty, and those are the values that sustained him and exposed as an episode. Another big issue, though, is that Clark is still very attached to his human life. Brainiac attempted to drive a wedge between Clark and mankind two different ways and in two different episodes. I speak here of Splinter and Solitude. But each time, Brainiac was defeated because Clark wouldn't give up on his human life, and his human life wouldn't give up on him. This is a positive development. For now, anyway. But the time's going to come when Clark Kent's commitment to the pretense of being human is going to be his greatest weakness. But for right now, you could say that that's really the only thing that saved the world. Moving into other things, Lexmas was an overall more fun episode. At least for Clark's participation. He got to play the role of Santa Claus for Metropolis for one night. For Lex's part, though, Lexmas is the first concrete, unmistakable sign that Lex is sliding towards the dark side. This isn't a decision that Lex is making arbitrarily, either. The events of the past five seasons have taken their toll on him. It's a logical decision for Lex to make, considering the circumstances. Now, to circle back to Clark for a minute, Reckoning was Smallville's 100th episode, and a lot of things were set down in stone in that episode. For one thing, Jonathan Kent is dead. Like, dead, dead. Deader than dead is dead. For two things, though, Jonathan Kent is dead, and... It's all Clark's fault. Now, up to now, Clark's usually been able to save the day. But even on those occasions when he's failed, the casualty was usually a stranger. Those losses really didn't hit all that close to home for Clark, when you really think about it. But this time, Clark's poor decision-making might have saved Lana, yeah, but they came at the expense of Jonathan Kent's life. If Clark hadn't told Lana his secret... She wouldn't have died in the alternate timeline, but saving her life allowed Jonathan to have his big confrontation with Lionel in the barn, the strain of which gave him a heart attack. And Jonathan's heart was only weak because of Clark and decisions that he's made in previous seasons. So any way that you care to look at it, Clark Kent owns this. And the specter of Jonathan Kent's death is going to haunt Clark for a long time to come. That much was clear in the episode Vengeance, which I talked about in the last retrospective, and it gets reaffirmed in the batch of episodes I'm talking about this time around, too. Clark was extremely emotionally raw in Vengeance, and he's less raw now, but that doesn't mean that he's okay. It's going to be a long time before you can really say that he is okay, in fact. Even so, Clark is still pretty functional right now. He showed true loyalty to Chloe and the episode Tomb. Then he showed true friendship and acceptance to Victor Stone in Cyborg. So while it is true that Clark no longer has Jonathan's influence in his life, he's still a good man trying to do right. And that counts for a lot. Now, this isn't completely perfect. Clark's punishing himself for what happened to Jonathan. And in the episode Hypnotic, Clark dumps Lana even though he has a picture-perfect excuse to get back with her. And it's 
really understandable, to tell you the truth. Clark's secret has caused so much pain and so much suffering for people that it actually makes sense that he wants to cut his losses with Lana and spare her any further misery. This secret got Jonathan Kent killed, y'all. So who's to say where things might go for Lana, right? It's going to be a long time before we see Clark find a way to truly accept his powers and his alien heritage. And we should say that in Clark's mind, having superpowers is one problem. Being an alien is a separate problem. They're related to each other, but they're still separate burdens. In Clark's mind, his powers cause pain for other people, especially the people that he cares about. And also in his mind, his alien heritage causes pain for himself. They are two separate problems, and they have to be resolved separately. And they will get resolved, but that's in the future. In the here and now, I've said that Smallville Phase 2 began in the dreaded Season 4. The start of Phase 2 is marked by Smallville reaching its visual zenith. From the dreaded fourth season through the end of the sainted seventh season, Smallville has never looked this good before. And for the most part, it never looked this good again either. As an example, I point back to basically any of the Fortress of Solitude scenes from the first four episodes of this season. There's really nothing in our real world that resembles those Fortress of Solitude scenes, but they are gorgeous. Smallville's days as a relatively grounded show are behind us. From here on in, the series is going to become more and more fantasy-oriented as time goes by. That was true, starting with the dreaded fourth season, and it gets reinforced this season both in terms of story, but especially in terms of cinematography and visuals. Smallville Phase 2 got off to a rocky start with the dreaded season 4. There's just no doubt about that. But... This is still Smallville's prime, and not just from an aesthetic standpoint either. Everything that makes Smallville awesome can be found, to some degree or another, from the dreaded fourth season going right on through to the end of the sainted seventh season. Without question, Smallville Phase 2 is my favorite era of the show, and with the fifth season, we're finally talking about quality material. So, as a result... I'm actually having a, a lot more fun talking about these Smallville retrospectives now than I ever have before. Now, apart from all that stuff, I checked the dates on everything, and the stuff that you're about to hear, guys, just like the last Smallville retrospective, I recorded this stuff, guys, two years ago. Anyway, there's really no deeper meaning to that. I just want to throw that out there. And now you know. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, last time I finished up my comments when I was talking about the episode Hypnotic. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 5, beginning with Episode 17, Void. And as we go through all of this, you guys are going to find out just how much I'm willing to do in order to get free pizza. Be right back after these messages.
30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my analysis of Smallville's fifth season. Now, in the last retrospective, we talked about how Smallville was entering a phase where it was shifting gears. The episodes that we're talking about this time around mark the beginning of the show entering a completely new era. I'll talk a bit more about that in the introduction to season six, but the long and short of it is that what Smallville's been up to recently was fine in its place, but the show has got to start preparing for the future, and the groundwork for that is being laid right here. But that's more of a long-term thing. The batch of episodes that we're talking about this time out are building toward the season finale. A few more chess pieces have got to be moved around the board, and that process starts now. And that all begins with Episode 17, Void. Nursing a broken heart because of her recent breakup with Clark, Lana experiments with a serum that allows her to flatline and then see and talk to her dead parents in the afterlife. So, between Tomb, Cyborg, and Hypnotic, we've had three standalone episodes in a row. And relatively low-budget standalone episodes at that. So, you know that means that when the story gets a little bit more back on topic, it's going to hit pretty hard. But that's not completely what happens here with Void. I don't think it's accurate at all to call this a, a completely standalone episode. But, like, at the same time, it's also not accurate to say that it bears directly on the season-wide arc revolving around Milton Fine his partnership with Lex Luthor, and all that stuff. The end result is that Void treads a sort of interesting middle ground between being just, an, just another adventure in the Smallville universe, a character piece, 
as well as a season-wide episode. One interesting thing here is that Clark zips off to Honduras on a moment's notice to go looking for Milton Fine. Now, on the surface, that may not mean very much to you, but hear me out. In the old days, Clark would have found Martha or Jonathan or both explain uh, what Chloe found when she was doing all of her research and then talk about the possibility of super speeding to Honduras to go looking for fine. That's what would have happened before, but it's not what happens here. Clark doesn't even mention anything to, uh, to Chloe about it. He just darts on down to uh, Honduras without even much of a plan. Hell, he barely even knows where to start looking. Now, understand, it's not like Clark's never left town without permission before. He super sped over to Hub City in the episode Ryan back in Season 2 to go looking for a doctor. Then he did it twice back in the dreaded fourth season. The first time was in Run when he and Bart hung out in Florida for a while, and then again later on in Sacred when he went to Shanghai. In fact, now that I think about it, he also did it in uh, Unsafe, also from the dreaded fourth season, whenever he and Alicia uh, went to Vegas. Here's the thing, though. Each of those things were done either to save someone's life or just to keep someone out of, uh, out of trouble as much as possible, or in the case of Unsafe, because Clark had been drugged with red kryptonite. In all of these cases, though, except for Unsafe, Clark was motivated by a friend rather than acting completely out of his own self-interests. In each case, Clark had a pretty simple task. He just wanted to keep the peace. Void, the episode that we're talking about here, Void's different in that Clark goes to Honduras without much of a plan, not completely sure what he, uh, who he's looking for, or for that matter, what he might do once he finds his target. Clark just goes to Honduras and hopes for the best. Now, there's a time and a place to immediately jump into action, but there's also a lot of wisdom in gathering intel, developing a tactical advantage, and formulating a plan. Clark does none of that here. He just rushes off half-cocked. There's a lot to say, to move on to other things, there's a lot to say about Lionel here in Void. He's inching his way closer to Martha. He's, he, he's giving her pointers and offering assistance wherever he can. He's basically putting on his best Mr. Nice Guy routine so that Martha just might reciprocate in some way or another. <laughs> and honestly, you gotta admire the balls on this guy. Ever since he helped deal with the blackmailer from Cyborg, He's been in with Martha. He knows he's in her good graces, and he wants to make the most of it. It's almost enough to make you forget that he was sitting right there the night Jonathan died of a heart attack. In some ways, though, you really can't blame him too much. This is the best shot he's ever had with Martha. He knows it, and he's pressing every advantage that he's got. He knows that money and power aren't going to impress Martha Kent, so he's going incredibly fucking far out of his way to be there for her. And you can't say that he hasn't made a ton of progress in this either.
Now, I went into the blood and guts of why that is last time, so if you want to hear me yammer about that, go back eight episodes. Point is, though, Martha and Lionel have had chemistry together for years, and Lionel's playing his part to the hilt here. And yet, except for his timing, there's really nothing all that nasty about what Lionel wants. I mean, in and of itself, you're not a supervillain for loving and caring about someone. I mean, really. The worst you can say about Lionel here, apart from his dishonesty and his omissions about the blackmailer, is that his timing is pretty damn tacky. Otherwise, though, he's really not being all that inappropriate. Keep in mind, though, my basis of comparison here is what Lionel probably would have done had he found himself in this same situation back in the mighty third season. I mean, admit it, this new, changed Lionel has used kids' gloves more often than the old Lionel probably would have. Even so, Martha defines the relationship for Lionel right here in Void. Look, it may be a political function, but in my experience, the last thing anyone wants to do over dinner is talk shop. Just, it's another way to uh, connect with your colleagues. Why don't we go together tomorrow night? I'll help you navigate the rough waters. Thank you. <laughs> but Lionel, I hope you're not expecting something on a personal level. The two of us will never be anything more than friends. I understand. Now, Martha may not be as worldly as Lionel. She may not be as wealthy or powerful, but she's also not an idiot. She knows how she responds to him and how he responds to her. It's clear that she's not going to tolerate him hitting on her. It's also clear, though, that Lionel doesn't buy a word of that. He's gotten this far with his whole Mr. Nice Guy routine and Mr. Supportive Friend. He obviously believes it's just a matter of time until he separates Martha from her clothes. Now, as to whether or not he's right, well, not to spoil ahead, but we'll never really know for sure about this. On top of that, it comes out later that Lionel's in on Clark's secret. He's also the one who put Chloe on Define's trail in Honduras, where Clark later comes knocking. Now, you could see this as Lionel trying to steer Clark on Define's path from the shadows. But Clark thinks Lionel could be playing everybody against everybody else while he waits to make his next move. Clark doesn't have all the facts here. Because of that, it'd be fair to say that Clark hasn't been this concerned about Lionel since the mighty season three. Now, so far, I've talked around Void's A-plot. Basically, some med students have developed a kryptonite-based serum that can put people under and then send them into the afterlife. It's interesting how Lana... Clark and Lex go on parallel and yet divergent journeys here. Lana's parents reassure her. They'll always be there for her. 
Their interaction with Lana is based completely on comfort and affirmation. All the things that they never really had a chance to say and do in life. Whether you think Lana's an angel or a turbo bitch, you have to admit that she needs her parents right now. And of course they'd want to comfort her, love her, and be there for her as best they can. Clark's journey revolves around Jonathan warning Clark about what's coming. I'm not even going to try to summarize it. In this case, it really is best to just let the characters speak for themselves in this. Dad. Hello, son. <laughs> I can't believe it's you. You don't belong here, Clark. You have to go back. Dad. You don't know how hard it's been. All I've done is hurt everyone that's close to me. It's not true, son. You died because of me. Winjarel brought me back to life and restored my powers. He told me there'd be a price. The life of someone I love. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry, Clark. Believe me, you have nothing to be sorry about. I lived a, a full, wonderful life. I had everything that a husband or a, a father could ever possibly dream of. I am so very proud that I died protecting you. Protecting me from what? Lionel Luther Clark. He knows your secret. He knows everything. You can't stay here, son. You've got to keep your mother safe. You've got to keep the whole world safe. No, Dad. Clark, not without you. Dad, I need you. I cannot do this without you. Yes, you can. This is your destiny, son. You are going to touch the lives of so many people. Not just as a man, but as a, as a symbol. You're a symbol of peace. You're a symbol of justice. And now it's time for you to go. No, no! I'll always be with you, son. Clark! Always! Clark, please. Clark! This is all stuff that Clark needs to hear. The trouble, though, is that it's just too soon. At this point in the story, Clark just doesn't have the distance from Jonathan's death that he needs. Now, I don't want to spoil anything, but if Clark could have had this talk with Jonathan in the sainted season 7, or season 8 or 9, it'd be fair to say that Smallville would have turned out very differently. But he doesn't. He has it right here in season five. And so because of that, Jonathan's words fall on deaf ears because it's all still too fresh for Clark right now. He's barely had time to grieve for Jonathan prior to this encounter. He's still trying to take it all in, and he can't really hear what Jonathan's trying to tell him. 
Lex's trip to the afterlife, though, is probably the saddest of all. It's an interesting coda for Lexmas, actually. Lillian Luther shames Lex for wiping his ass with the guidance that she tried to give him back in Lexmas. She berates him for trying to destroy Jonathan, and then rubs his nose in the crazy number of people that he's going to murder in life. Lex never really believed that he met his mother back in Lexmas. But now he's got to rethink that. But beyond all that, this episode drives home the point that in spite of Lex's best efforts to rewrite history, Lillian Luther was never a saint. She murdered Lex's little brother, as was revealed in Memoria from the Mighty Season 3. And honestly, that's bad enough. But here in Void, all she does is pretty much mock the fact that her only surviving son might just drown in the blood of all the people that he's going to murder later in life. And Lex is still trying to rewrite history. All Lillian did in her encounter with Lex is bitch him out. But Lex can't bring himself to tell anybody that. So he lies to Lana and tells her that his mother said that she's proud of who Lex is becoming. Lex abjectly refuses to see his mother and himself for what they both truly are. Lex has always cursed the fact that he's Lionel Luther's son, but maybe he should have spent more time cursing the fact that Lillian Luther's his mother. Anyway, when all said and done, Void didn't really move the ball forward as much as Hypnotic did, but it set a hell of a lot of things up for what's coming for the remainder of the fifth season. Fragile, episode 18. Clark and Martha take in a girl with the ability to shatter and control glass. You know how Magneto has command over all metals? Same thing here, except she's a kid. And a girl. And it's not metal, it's glass. But otherwise, same basic thing. Oh yeah, and she's totally mute. Anybody want to take bets that she'll start talking before the end credits roll? And hey, directorial debut, Tom Welling. You know, I've got a pretty good memory of watching this episode when it first aired. Well pretty good. It's actually pretty clear. But good? Eh, tough to say. Basically, at the time this episode came on, I lived just up the street from a friend of mine. She and I had a funny habit of living in fairly close proximity to one another. Now, I mentioned that the summer through the winter of, of uh, 2005 is mine. I'm not talking about it. But when I moved back to Houston after all of that, I ended up getting a, getting a townhouse that was pretty close to where this friend of mine lived. Red. We shall call her Red. Anyway. So, one night, Red invites me over for dinner, right? Basically, what was going on was this dude at her work bought her this incredibly high-end sushi uh, sushi set. 
And then he offered to come over and help her break it in. Now, Red and I suspected that he maybe wanted to break in a lot more than just the sushi set. Truth is, this guy, this co-worker of hers, had it bad for her. Now, I'll be honest. As redheads go, I guess red's uh, attractive. It's just that I never felt attracted to her. Make sense? I mean, we were friends, and we were both perfectly okay with that. We didn't have the, the kind of thing where you eventually have to clarify the nature of your association. That's not a conversation that we ever really needed to have. So, she invited me over to her apartment so that the whole thing felt less like a date. Basically is what it came down to. So, either I showed up, or Red's boyfriend was going to have to show up. Now, I knew her boyfriend. He's a hell of a nice guy. He was never the possessive type. So, don't misunderstand me here. You'd have to go a long way to find somebody who's more easygoing than her boyfriend, now her husband. He's a nice guy, but he's still a guy. And sooner or later, he'd have an opinion about some other dude buying his chick swanky gifts and shit like that. So, to prevent a bad situation from getting really bad, I agreed to have dinner with both of them on two conditions. Number one, Sushi sucks, so Red had to order me a pizza. Number two, she had to let me watch Smallville on her TV. You see, I didn't have cable at the time, and so I was pretty much stuck waiting until Friday night to watch Smallville because that was when it was, av- uh, when it was available for torrent downloads. But the way I saw it, if I had to give up whatever it was that I used to do on Thursday nights... I figured I may as well set those two conditions. You know? I mean, I can be bribed, people. Very cheaply, I might add, for any of you listening who might be interested in bribing me. So, the evening went more or less as you'd expect. Loverboy came over and was something less than thrilled to see me on Red's couch, stuffing my face with pizza and watching Smallville. Now, yeah, 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 he tried to play it off, but... It's pretty obvious when somebody has that sudden realization that they're not getting laid that night after all. That's pretty much the face that Loverboy made when he realized that I'd be joining them for dinner that evening. Honestly, the whole thing was probably a lot more awkward than was absolutely necessary. Now, you might think that I came away from it wishing Red had just told the guy thanks but no thanks to the whole sushi thing, but... You'd be wrong. First, I love tense situations that aren't tense because I made them tense. Second, I love Smallville, as if that wasn't obvious. Third, never underestimate what I'm willing to do for free pizza. So, as far as I was concerned, the whole evening was a grand slam of awesome. Anyway... So, fragile. This is mostly a standalone episode, but as usual, it speaks to character. 
sense of pattern here yet? Anyway, let's start with the easy stuff. The scene between Lex and Chloe in Lex's office was gold. Chloe knows a con when she sees one, and she knows Lex wants to get into Lana's pants. She sees Lex as the skeezy dude who nails chicks on the rebound, and then dresses him down accordingly. And let's face it, Lex's history with womanizing doesn't exactly make him look too good right about now. On the other hand, a lot of characters tend to assume that Lex is impervious to harm when it comes to insults and meanie head words. But when someone really hurts Lex verbally, he fires right back and invariably scores a direct hit. Chloe. I know your moral compass has a tendency to veer off course, but taking advantage of Lana when she's at her most vulnerable, it's despicable. I think your reporter's eye is getting a little cloudy. You're starting to see things that aren't there. I don't have to work for the DWP to know that there was enough electricity in that room to light up the entire state of Kansas. <laughs> it's interesting how perceptive you are about affairs of the heart, considering you've never actually been in a serious relationship. Do you really think that Lana would be remotely interested in you if she wasn't swept up in her own emotional tornado? I mean, honestly. <laughs> I appreciate you looking out for your friend. I do the same, but your concern is unwarranted. We're friends, nothing more. Lex, I know you're used to getting whatever you want without even thinking about the consequences, but I promise you, if you hurt my friend, there will be a consequence. And you're looking at her. Chloe. I think I'm getting an inkling why you've never had a boyfriend. And then there's Maddie. If you follow these Smallville retrospectives for any length of time, you know that I tend not to talk a whole lot about acting and actors. There's a reason for that. For one thing, all I really give a damn about is that actors deliver their lines in a believable way. Apart from that, I just, I, I don't care. The other thing, though, is that Filmmaking and storytelling depends on everybody to do their part. And so if you ask me, actors are just a cog in a much larger machine. Everybody, including actors, would do well to remember that. But every now and then, the acting on Smallville goes so far beyond the call of duty that I'm just not doing my job if I don't comment on it. And that's the case with Maddie. Here's the thing. Most child actors get by on how cute they are. It doesn't matter that they usually suck at acting. What matters is how cute and photogenic they can be. If they film well, odds are they'll get work. Until puberty, anyway. But now and then, you get a child actor like Emily Hurst, who completely knocks it out of the park. She brings a lot of quiet intensity to Maddie, but she has light switch moments. 
brooding one moment, bubbly the next. She never feels like her performance is forced. Her mood swings, for lack of a better word, but look and feel natural at every, at every step of the way. Maddie's been through a lot of bullshit in her life, and Emily Hurst brings all that stuff across with seemingly no effort. People, that'd be amazing if she'd been twice her age at the time, but she was only about 11 or 12 years old when she shot this episode. She did well not only among her peers on the show, but especially among child actors. Speaking of Maddie, though, her presence in this episode brings up two fairly important points. First, it's apparently still not widely known that Smallville is the natural habitat for all kinds of freaks and mutants and shit. The people of Smallville seem to be up to speed about that, but if the CPS worker is anything to judge by, meteor freak awareness doesn't really spread too far outside of Lowell County just yet. Which is interesting to know. The bigger issue, though, is, second, Maddie is the first case we know about where a meteor power is transmitted through biology. Maddie was never exposed to meteors in her life. She inherited her glass-shattering powers from her father. This is the first time, on record, where a meteor freak's powers have been portrayed as hereditary traits. To my memory, not much of anything ever comes of that during the run of the show, but at the same time, it does tell us a little something-something. You know, about what the future of Smallville and this universe could be like. Anyway, part of her rock-solid performance is her chemistry with Tom Welling. Clark and Maddie really do bond over the course of Fragile so that by the end, you do kind of ache a little bit when Maddie has to go away. Now, partly it's good writing. Partly it's good acting. But partly it's just good continuity. Clark bonded pretty believably with Ryan back in Stray from Season 1. But the kid who played Ryan was a fairly typical child actor in ways that Emily Hurst just wasn't. So you sympathize with Clark for losing the closest thing he'll ever have to a little brother, but you never really buy into their bond. At least not completely. That's less of a problem here in Fragile, though. Again, that's partly due to Emily Hurst's strong performance, but it's also because Clark's dynamic with Maddie is different from his dynamic with Ryan. Clark and Maddie seem to accept Clark's role as surrogate father to Maddie. He's protective and nurturing to her in ways that are just really paternal. It's good characterization. It's good continuity. And yes, it's good acting. But clearly what we need to understand here is that Clark is just good with children especially outsiders and, and hard luck cases. But for the grace of God, there goes Clark. And Clark has never had any illusions about just how lucky he is to have been raised by the Kents. So his heart breaks for children who are just as different as he is, but who lack the support structure of something like the Kent family. Clark had lessons to teach Ryan, and he's also got lessons to teach Maddie. 
Without a stable family environment, Maddie doesn't necessarily have a fine-tuned moral compass. She knows that stealing's wrong, but she was ready, willing, and able to kill Tyler McKnight when she thought that he might hurt Clark, or for that matter, someone else. But Clark talked her down. Now, understand something. Clark could have forced his will on her. He could have dragged her out of the barn, and that would have been enough to defuse the situation. But Clark wants to reach Maddie. She needs to understand and then make the right choice for herself. Dragging her out of the barn would, it, that would definitely solve the problem with Tyler, but it wouldn't necessarily help Maddie. Plus, Clark's not an idiot. He had to know that talking Maddie down would be the best comeuppance that someone like Tyler McKnight can ever hope for. But Maddie put the cherry on top by hugging Clark and then apologizing to him. This was the moment that Tyler realized that he'd lost his daughter forever. For someone like him, that's the best justice that they can hope for. Anyway, there's some forward motion going on in other areas. Martha promotes Lois to be her chief of staff. Now, this would be just a little bit unusual if Martha was a senator for the United States Congress, but being as she's just a state senator, hiring Lois as her chief of staff is just about as logical as hiring her to be the campaign manager in the first place. Positions like these tend to be filled by family, friends, and or a small number of volunteers. I truly don't understand why people don't understand this. And it makes me wonder if they even know the difference between the state legislature and the United States fucking Congress. I admit, though, that the main reason Lois serving as Martha's chief of staff works for me is that it gets her out of the town. Finally, Lana pays a visit to Lex's office and they kiss a few times. <sighs> All right. Guess I'll go ahead and talk about it. On to the sort of fucked up deeper themes and implications. Lana has reasons for turning to Lex. As I've said before, superficially, he's been more upfront and honest with her. He's included her in his search for the spaceship from Arrival, his investigation of and partnership with Milton Fine, and tons of other things. Understand, Lana knows that Clark's keeping something from her. Probably several somethings, in fact. She knows it. She knows when Clark is stonewalling her, and Lately, he's been doing that a lot. Combine all that shit with his erratic behavior, and you can see why Lex just might be more appealing to her. Plus, let's face it, she has to know just how pissed off and hurt Clark's going to be when he finds out about her and Lex. As for Lex... You know, it's funny how both Luthers are taking advantage of recent misfortunes for their own purposes. Jonathan Kent's death has given Lionel the best shot he's ever had with Martha, and he's making the most of it with uh, every chance he gets. 
Same thing for Lex. He knows that Clark Kent truly broke Lana's heart this time. And not to put too fine a point on it, she's of age now. This is the best chance that Lex might ever get, and he knows it. Now, they say that Lex's attraction to Lana was hinted at back in Metamorphosis from Season 1, where Lex spies Lana from afar and then takes a bite off an apple. For sure, it was very heavily suggested back in Jinx from the dreaded Season 4, where Lex arranged to have Jason Teague fired from Smallville High because he discovered he and Lana were in a relationship together. And even Clark didn't buy that Lex did it for moral reasons. All the hints, suggestions, and allegations about Lex's possible interest in Lana end this season, though. Lex's attraction to her has been pretty fucking explicit ever since Lexmas. And, lest anybody be tempted to consign that to dreams, Lex kissed Lana back in Reckoning, in both timelines. And, lest anybody be tempted to consign that to being drunk, he kisses her again right here in Fragile. And yes, Lana once again runs out of his office. But, not before kissing him again herself. All this, of course, raises the question of just what the hell Lex sees in Lana. And people, I'll be honest, for years, I didn't understand it. It's only been since I started re-watching this stuff for this retrospective that it all hit me. Lex wants to be Clark. Lex envies everything that Clark does, wants everything that Clark has all that stuff. So, in other words, Lex is the consummate older brother. It doesn't matter that Lex has seen more ass than a public toilet seat. He wants what Clark has. The biggest prize of all for him is Lana. It's not because of Lana's merits as a person, either. Lex long ago objectified Lana. She's an item. She's something to be possessed. She's just something that you mark off on the inventory. In fact, in a sick, twisted kind of way, you have to wonder if Lex doesn't want to refashion his shrine under Clark as Lana's bedroom. Lex's Kent Museum is, after all, incomplete without Lana, right? Lex doesn't love Lana. He loves the idea of her. Swooping in on Clark's ex-girlfriend would be the highlight of Lex Luthor's life. So when you come right down to it, beyond the implicit creepy factor of Lex eyeing Lana back when she was a freshman in high school, his, fasc his fascination with her is fucking twisted because it necessarily requires her to be Clark Kent's, shall we say, leftovers. Ultimately, Lex and Lana, as a couple, completely revolve around Clark Kent. Lex wants to be Clark. And Lana wants to hurt Clark. It's logical that she and Lex would never have been interested in each other if it wasn't for each of their relationships with Clark. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I've seen some unhealthy relationships before, but... Damn. Anyway. Episode 19. Mercy. Smallville has a wild night with the movies The Game and Saw. A lunatic with a mask like Doctor Doom's ensnares Lionel in a series of elaborate traps that ultimately force Clark to use his powers in front of Lionel. Luckily, Lionel already knows the truth. Another standalone episode. At least, superficially. But honestly, some standalone episodes are so important to the Smallville mythos that you have to wonder how fair it is to call them standalone episodes. I mean, really. In the grand scheme of things, what did Memoria from the Mighty Season 3 really do to advance that year's season arc? When you think about it, not much. But at the same time, everybody remembers Memoria. I'm not saying Mercy's as good or memorable as Memoria. Don't get me wrong, I'm just saying that importance to the Smallville mythos has been enough to elevate other standalone episodes, so why shouldn't the same be said of Mercy? Let's get the obvious stuff out of the way up front, though. Mercy makes a lot of allusions to the movies The Game, starring Michael Douglas, and the Saw franchise. Lincoln Cole's mask looks eerily like Doctor Doom's. Some people find this shit more distracting than others, and I'll admit, these things bothered the hell out of me back when Mercy first aired, but part of the advantage of doing these retrospectives is to get a new angle on Smallville's myriad storylines that just wasn't possible back when the show was still going. One such is Lionel knowing Clark's secret. We knew, even at the time, that was important. But we had no clue just how important that would ultimately be to Smallville as a Superman story and to Clark's character arc therein. So I'm sorry, but I refuse to let Mercy's similarities to a bunch of movies that I don't even like ruin things for me. Plus, there are a lot of angles here. One of them is early on when Lionel bursts into Lex's office making wild accusations. I guess that nobody told him that Clark Kent's already got that job. Then again, though, like I just said, Lex envies everything Clark has, so you'd think he'd appreciate the irony. Or not. In any case, though, we get a pretty clear picture of just how far things have deteriorated uh, between Lex and Lionel. Back in Duplicity, from the second season when Lionel forcibly moved into the mansion, Lex could only pretend to be concerned for Lionel's well-being. Truth is, Lex didn't want Lionel in the mansion, but the most he could do was fake being worried about his father. Here, he can't even manage that. The best he can do is, is, is to just announce he's worried about how threats against Lionel might impact Luther Corp's bottom line. So... You gotta admit that things have gotten pretty fucking bad between those two. So bad, in fact, that Lionel ultimately returns the favor by calling Clark the type of son a father can be proud of. 
That's a direct hit in ways that Lionel himself probably doesn't understand. Back in truth from the Mighty Season 3, Lex says that his fondest uh, wish would be hearing Lionel say that he loves him. But Lex ultimately realizes by Memoria that their wounds just go too deep. There was no hope for them after that. Lex, in Memoria, refused to listen to Lionel's apology for an entire wasted life. Or, for that matter, listen to him choke out the words that he really does love Lex. But now he hears Lionel giving Clark a small amount of the approval that he's always wanted for himself. Lex wants everything that Clark has. How can that not include Lionel Luther's love and affection? That's a one-way street as far as Clark's concerned, though. I've been expecting you. Kalal. How long have you known? From the moment I held in my hand the crystal that helped to form your Fortress of Solitude. The one that put you in a coma. Coma? I'd like to think of it as a... A state of contemplative repose. You've known my secret for almost a year. Yes. Why haven't you done anything? What? Exposure to the world? Some strange visitor from another planet? I've tried to tell you I am not your enemy. To reveal your secret would change your destiny. And it would harm someone I care about very deeply. You had a choice. To kill my mother or to kill yourself. I could never harm your mother. There was no choice. Yeah? Unless you knew the gun wasn't loaded. You have no reason to believe anything I say. I realize that. But I hope eventually you will come to trust me. I only want what's best for you and your mother. Son. You don't call me that. Jonathan Kent was my father. No. I'm not trying to take his place. You couldn't. My mother seems to think there may be some good in you. But I'm not so sure. It takes time, Clark. Maybe you will be. Or maybe you'll just show your true colors. Secret or no secret, you stay away from my mother. Or you'll wish I never saved your life. Yeah, Lionel's kept quiet about Clark's secret for almost a year. He could have blown it out in the open anytime he wanted. But he purposely kept his mouth shut. He's done nothing but good things for Martha. And Clark knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that Lionel can, at least under certain circumstances, be used by Jarrell to protect him. None of that matters, though. Clark doesn't think he can afford to take chances here, so he threatens Lionel. And it's important to realize that we've never heard Clark do that before. Not in his right mind. Most of the time, Clark's a pretty easygoing kid, but he's completely on the defensive now. He remembers only too well how much trouble Lionel can cause. 
he doesn't have Jonathan to depend on anymore. So Clark figures that his best bet is to make a bunch of threats. Throw his balls around. Put the fear of God into Lionel so that he won't know just how scared shitless Clark is over all this. But judging by Lionel's expression, he doesn't believe a single word. Still, pretty heavy shit this time around, huh? And if you know what's coming in Smallville's future for the next couple seasons, you know just how big Mercy truly is. It was more than just another standalone episode when it first aired, but I think history's been pretty kind to it. It's easier to see now the arc that Lionel's been through up to this point, and it's easier to see how Mercy is the real turning point for him and his relationship with the Kents. From here on in, things are never going to really be the same. All of which raises the question of just whose side Lionel's truly on. But that's going to have to wait for next time. As for next time, I'm going to be talking about the episodes Fade, Oracle, and Vessel. For right now, though, it's time for a break. Be right back after these messages. superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. 
Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>